This afternoon, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts, just taking it a section at a time. And we have made it all the way to chapter 16. And so we are now on Paul's second missionary journey with him. Remember that we saw the first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And chapter 15 is sort of like an interlude between the first two journeys, where a question comes up about circumcision and Gentiles, and so they take the time to go to Jerusalem and to discuss that and come to an agreement on the Lord's will so that they can share it with other churches. But right at the end of chapter 15, Paul decided to take Silas with him and set out from Antioch on his second missionary journey. And so that's what we'll be looking at for the next three chapters, is what unfolds on that journey. You might notice right away as you look at the map that the second journey is much more extensive than the first. Paul will begin by checking in on the churches that he helped to establish on the first journey. But after that, his reach is sort of broadened as he goes on through uh, Asia into Macedonia. And we'll be talking about that this afternoon. So let's begin with verses 1 through 5. Acts 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. So again, you might notice that Paul begins by making his way back to the cities where he's just established churches. He goes back to Derbe and to Lystra. You also see Iconium represented there in verse 2. And what Paul wants to do is check in on these brethren. They're new converts. He doesn't expect them to be totally spiritually mature. He expects them to need further instruction and encouragement. And so he makes the effort to go and encourage them. But he's also delivering for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And that is what chapter 15 was concerned about. So now that they have come to an agreement about that, he can relate that to these brethren. But it's on this part of his journey that he picks up a young disciple named Timothy. And we talked about Timothy a little bit this morning in Bible class. And we're going to talk about Philippi and the church in Philippi as we get further into this chapter. But we learn a few things about Timothy right away here in chapter 16. His mother was a Jewish convert to Christianity, but his father was an unbelieving Greek. And if you could just do your best to put yourself in Timothy's shoes, to live in the first century and not be quite Jewish and not be quite Gentile, would be a really difficult place to be. But instead of seeing that as a disadvantage, I think Paul sees that as a real advantage to Timothy, that he has uh, an acquaintance with both cultures and maybe a, a unique opportunity to be able to reach and reason with people who might come from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds. But 
Paul's decision to pick up Timothy is not just because of his ethnicity. If you notice there in verse 2, it says he was well spoken of by the brothers. And over and over again, the book of Acts emphasizes to us that character is what counts. That it's not about how flashy or impressive somebody might be, but it's often the people who you might overlook who the Lord chooses to, to use for his purposes. And the most important thing is that they love the Lord and they love his people. So Paul decides that he'll take Timothy with him on his journey. But before they leave, there's one thing left to do. And I wonder what that conversation might have been like. Where Timothy agrees to go with Paul and Paul says, Well, you know, we are going to be around a bunch of Jewish people. There's one more thing we've got to take care of. And to Timothy's credit, there doesn't seem to be any resistance to being circumcised. Um, now, that does raise some questions. Because as we're reading through the book of Acts, and we get here to chapter 16, and we see that Paul circumcises Timothy, we say, hold up, wait just a minute. Didn't we sort that out in the last chapter? Like, didn't we have the whole thing where we all came to Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders, they all talked about it and we all decided we don't need to circumcise Gentiles? Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? And furthermore, if you know what happens in Galatians 2, you know that Paul refused to have Titus circumcised, not yielding in submission even for a moment. So what's going on? Well, I think that we're seeing the difference between letting people impose their preferences on others and people choosing to forfeit their rights to avoid conflict. To circumcise Titus in the context of Galatians would be to concede that circumcision was necessary, that Gentiles did have to be circumcised. It would compromise the truth of the gospel. But to circumcise Timothy in the context of Acts 16 was simply to avoid the distraction. And so there was nobody pressuring Paul to circumcise Timothy. But if he could avoid the conflict, that's something that Paul wanted to do. It's sort of like Paul's attitude in 1 Corinthians 9. You know, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about his evangelistic strategy, which is to become all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. He talks about to the Jews, he became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became like a Gentile. And so even when it comes to a great sacrifice, something that would be painful and uncomfortable, Timothy recognized the benefit of that, and Paul recognized it as well. And so it takes wisdom to know how to make the right judgments in each situation. There are some times when it's right to circumcise Timothy, and there are other times when it's right to refuse to circumcise Titus. Now, as Paul picks up Timothy here, it does sort of remind us of what happened back in Lystra and Derby. We also mentioned this in Bible class this morning, that on Paul's first missionary journey back in Acts 14, Paul was stoned in the city of Lystra. And it doesn't tell us anything about Timothy back there, but I do wonder if, Timothy was sort of like Paul, who at one time stood by and watched Stephen be martyred by stoning. And maybe that had something to do with 
Paul's appreciation of Jesus when Jesus finally appeared to him on the road. I wonder if Timothy had seen the faith of the Apostle Paul, and he was that much more eager to join him when he was asked. But after they pick up Timothy here in Lystra and Derby, we see what happens next in the verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And this is a fascinating little section, mainly because it tells us that the Apostle Paul wanted to go preach somewhere, and the Holy Spirit told him no. It tells us that Paul actually wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbid him. And then when he wanted to go to Mysia, the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from going there again. And that's how they end up in Troas. It's an interesting thing to think about. That the Apostle Paul saw an opportunity to preach the gospel. That he was eager to serve the Lord and bravely going to a new place. And he was prevented from going there. The Lord didn't prevent him from doing something wrong. In fact, from a certain perspective, the Lord prevented him from being useful. But what you notice about Paul is that he's not overly discouraged by that. He doesn't just say, okay, forget it. I'm just going to go back home. No, he sees the opportunities that are in front of him. And to be fair, he has helped a little to see the opportunities that are in front of him. Because there's a vision that comes to him in the night. A man from Macedonia who's saying, come over here and help us. And so Paul says, okay. We're going to Macedonia. You might also notice that in this section, Paul and his companions pick up another traveler in Troas. But you have to look very closely to notice who it is. Some of you, I'm sure, have noticed this before. But if you look very closely, in verse 8, the pronouns are they. And in verse 10, the pronouns become we. And so what we know is that Paul picked up the author of the book, who is Luke, at Troas. And the pronouns will switch back, and so you can be watching for that. But for the moment, Luke is with Paul and his companions as they travel. And Luke, being the detail-oriented physician that he is, the meticulous historian that he has proven to be, it's interesting to see that as Paul travels, Luke keeps very detailed records of what ports they stop at and how long they stay there. And you'll see that right away in the very next section. But this is how Paul ends up heading to Macedonia, being prevented from going into Asia and into Mysia, ends up at Troas, picks up Luke, and from there we'll see where they sail. So pick up here in verse 11. It says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there 
to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they make their way to the region of Macedonia, specifically to this city, Philippi, which is described as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. The region of Macedonia consisted of four parts or districts. Philippi was the chief city of one of these four districts, and it was formally recognized for its importance to the Roman Empire. And so this was a very Roman city, one that had a lot of pride in the empire, where Roman culture and Roman nationalism would have permeated that place. It was a popular place for Roman soldiers to retire to. And so it wouldn't be any great surprise that the Jewish population there was very low. In fact, if you've already picked up on Paul's pattern, you know that typically when he goes to a new place, that he heads straight to the synagogue, but not in Philippi. And that's because, evidently, there wasn't one. Uh, I'm told that it would take 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. And so this probably implies that there weren't 10 Jewish men in the city. But instead of going to the synagogue, Paul goes to this riverside where women would meet to pray, and he finds this woman who is from Thyatira. Now that's interesting. I don't know if you can see this on the map. It's probably way too small. But you can just take my word for it that right there is Thyatira. And if you look closely, that city is in the region of Asia. So isn't it interesting that Paul wanted to go to Asia, and he was prevented from going to Asia, but the Lord brought an Asian to him. Paul wanted to take the gospel to the people who lived in Asia, and he did it, just not the way that he planned to on this journey. It's amazing how the Lord works things out. The, the Spirit led him straight to this Asian woman in Macedonia. I think it's a good reminder for us that God always has a fuller picture to work with than we do. That we shouldn't be overly distraught when our plans don't go the way that we have hoped that they would or thought that they would. And oftentimes, God has ways of bringing us even greater blessings than we had planned or anticipated. But let's talk about what happens with Lydia. In verse 13, it says that they came to this place of prayer and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, verse 14 says that the Lord opened her heart. There was something that happened inside of Lydia that led to her obedience. 
I think sometimes maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable with saying things like that because we know how people misrepresent ideas like that. But we should be able to say what the scripture says. The Lord opened her heart. This was the grace of God in Lydia's life. That she was somebody who was lost and she was going her own way, but the Lord showed mercy to her and she was saved. Now, the question is how? How did the Lord open her heart? And I think that if you look closely at what's happening in verses 13 and 14, you'll see that the Lord opened her heart through the hearing of his word. In verse 13, it talks about how we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And then in verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. And then it goes on to say at the end of verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart. It seems clear to me that the Lord opened her heart through the hearing of his word. That she was somebody that was humble and she was receptive. And because of that, she was exactly the kind of person that the Lord was looking for. God has designed his word to attract some people and to repel others. God has designed the message of the gospel to be attractive to some and repulsive to others. And Lydia was somebody who was humble enough to receive it. And so when she heard the message, she was moved to obey it. Verse 15 is actually very interesting grammatically. Um, it sort of just assumes that she was baptized. It's a subtle thing, but it doesn't say, and then she was baptized. Instead, it says, oh yeah, and then after she was baptized, here's what happens. And it's because Luke is just sort of assuming that you'll understand that if somebody hears the word of God and is receptive to it, then that they will be baptized. And in fact, she is. In verse 15, she and her household have been baptized. And then the story ends with Lydia insisting on showing hospitality to Paul and his companions. It's always impressive to me when you see people who are new converts immediately just start living out the grace that they have been shown. And it seems like that is Lydia's mindset. Because of the joy of her salvation and the fellowship that she has with the Lord's people, it's just an obvious thing that, well, you guys got to come over and share a meal with me. And I like the way that it says in verse 15, and she prevailed upon us. I've had two grandmothers, uh, actually, I guess four if I count Katie's two, who have all prevailed upon me with their baked goods from time to time. You know what that's like when somebody is just like, oh, come on, you've got to have another piece. And, you know, who are you to say, well, no, I'm not going to have another piece of pie. But that's kind of the way that I think about Lydia, that she is just so eager to share what she has, that there's such goodness in her that Paul can't help but say, okay, I'll come home with you and, and, and stay with you. But this is a really encouraging start to the work in Philippi. And if you think back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, when Paul talks about his special relationship with this church here in, in Philippi, Philippians 1 and verse 5 mentions your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
Well, what we're reading about here in Acts 16 is the first day. And so on the very first day in Philippi, Paul receives hospitality from Lydia. All right, let's keep reading now in verses 16 through 24. It says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so this section explains how Paul and Silas wind up in prison in Philippi. It starts with a slave girl who apparently has the ability to perceive some spiritual insights because of a demon. I'm not going to pretend that I know how all of that works, but apparently her success rate is high enough that people pay her for her predictions and her insights. And sadly, she's being taken advantage of by the people that own her, using her for their own financial benefit. But what's interesting about her is that everything that she says is correct. If you look at the words in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's right. But Paul puts up with it for a while before he becomes greatly annoyed and commands the Spirit to come out. Now, I'll suggest that this was probably a tactical move, besides just being to ease Paul's annoyance. You know, what she was saying was true. However, it's probably not the best press to have a demon-possessed girl following you around saying it. And so it's a tactical decision, I think, not to have her being the herald for them. But the Lord gives Paul the direction to cast out the demon after a good bit of patient endurance. And this ends up greatly upsetting the owners of the slave girl. They're upset because they were using her to make money with the fortune telling. But if you notice, that's not exactly what they tell the authorities. If you look again at verse 20, the reason that they give is these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I'll just make sort of a side point observation here. A lot of times when people have personal reasons for being upset, deep down they know that their reasons are only personal 
and that nobody else would really care. And so often what they'll do is sort of cook up a version of the story that makes other people care and be upset. And it seems like that's what's happening here. Really, all they care about is the money, but they know that the authorities won't care about their money. And so they say, this is about customs. This is about uh, disorder. This is about encouraging people to do things that are not lawful. And the result is mob violence. In verse 22, they are beaten with rods. And then in verses 23 and 24, we see that Paul and Silas are put in the inner prison and have their feet fastened in the stocks. But this is not the end of the story. Because just like we've already seen so far, when God shuts one door, he often opens another one. And what we're going to see is that the experience in prison is a great opportunity for the spread of the gospel. And so let's read verses 25 through 34. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, there's a lot for us to notice here in this story, but the first thing that I think we should notice is that this is now the third nighttime prison escape that we've seen in the book of Acts. The first one was in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and some of the other apostles were in prison, and miraculously, they were freed. The second time was in Acts chapter 12, when Peter, again, was in prison, And remember, the angel of the Lord struck him and led him to the place of prayer um, at the house of John Mark's mother. But now for the third time, it's actually Paul in chapter 16. And again, at night, he is miraculously freed from his prison chains. So I'll just notice that this is another very intentional Peter-Paul connection in the book of Acts. We've been noticing how there are times when something happens to Paul that is remarkably similar to something that happened to Peter. And I think, again, the point is that the same authority that Peter has is the authority that Paul has. That the same power of Christ working in Peter is the power of Christ working in Paul. And so that's an intentional parallel. But the second thing that we ought to notice is what leads to the conversion of the jailer. And if you look in verse 25, it's Paul and Silas's faith. 
But the way that their faith is made known is by the things that they're saying and singing. It says that while they were in prison, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Tertullian said in the second century, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. I like that. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Despite the very difficult circumstances that Paul and Silas find themselves in, they do not feel like they are dismayed or distraught. Paul and Silas are chained in prison, but their hearts are free. They're finding comfort and joy in their relationship with God. And it's intriguing to the other prisoners who are listening. You know, you might say that they were a captive audience, although that changes in verse 26. But I think the lesson there for us is that when we encounter hardship, when we're in situations that would be easy for us to just be down and discouraged and feel sorry for ourselves, those are some of the greatest opportunities that we have to let others see the hope within us. To let others see that we're for real about the things that we say that we believe. That even when we're in prison, even when the diagnosis is terrible, even when there's no light at the end of the tunnel, we know that ultimately the Lord will take care of us. And so we have nothing to fear. And all of that results in the jailer himself asking Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. I think that implies that it wasn't just the prisoners who were listening to Paul and Silas, but the jailer himself recognized something special about these men. And so after this event with the earthquake and the doors being opened and him thinking that, you know, that was the end for him because he would be executed for letting the prisoners escape and Paul stopping him, he is moved to ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? How can I have the power in my life that you have in yours? Now, the third thing to notice here is the jailer's actual conversion. The question is asked in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? But then the answer is given in verse 31. And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, much like what we observed with Lydia. I think sometimes we're a little bit hesitant to say things like that. What must I do to be saved? Believe. That's it. It comes down to really understanding what is contained in belief, not in modifying the language of Scripture. We ought to be able to tell people, believe, and you will be saved. But much like Paul and Silas, we also need to be able to explain what belief involves. And if you continue to read in verse 32, it says they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, just like they had spoken it to Lydia. And then just like Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household responded by being baptized. So what does that teach us about salvation? What do you have to do to be saved? Well, you have to believe. 
Well, what does belief involve? Belief would involve obedience. Specifically, baptism from the context here. You know, somebody might say, well, all Paul told the jailer to do was to believe. That was it. Well, a good question to ask is, well, then why go to the trouble of being baptized in the middle of the night? If baptism wasn't necessary for salvation, then surely it would have been more convenient to wait until the next day. But you might also think about the way that believe is used in verse 34. In verse 34, when all is said and done, after the baptism, it says that he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, what do you think that he's rejoicing about? Do you think that he's just rejoicing that he had come to some mental um, acceptance of Jesus as Lord? Or was it because he had come to trust him enough to do what he says? See, baptism is the way that God has instructed us to call on his name for salvation. Those who believe God will choose to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's what we see consistently throughout the New Testament. Well, now let's look at the end of this story in verses 35 through 40. It says, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police heard these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So it seems like things kind of got out of control the night before. I don't know if Paul ever tried to bring up the fact that he was a Roman citizen, but that was lost on all of the mob uh, violence the previous night. But the next day, there is this crushing realization that they've made a terrible mistake. They've overlooked the fact that Paul is a Roman citizen and the way they've treated him is not appropriate. And so instead of acknowledging it and trying to make it right, there is a cover-up attempt by the police and the government. So take that for what you will. But Paul says, no, we're not going to do it that way. In fact, in verses 37 and 38, he says, you put us in prison publicly, you beat us publicly, you're going to free us publicly. And I don't think that Paul is just being petty here. You know, I don't think Paul is just sort of like being a, an arrogant, like, let me speak to your manager kind of person. No, what he's doing is he's actually looking out for the welfare of the brethren in Philippi. Paul's about to leave. But these new converts have to live here. Paul is going to be able to go on to the next place, but Lydia and the jailer and their families and whoever else has been converted, this is where they have to live. And so I believe what Paul is doing 
is protecting them as best he can from mistreatment by the police and by the magistrates. He's trying to make sure that they are more careful and that they don't mistreat the brethren that he leaves behind. So after being asked to leave Philippi, Paul visits Lydia and the brethren one more time before he sets out for the next stop on his journey. And so that brings chapter 16 to a conclusion, and we will conclude with three observations. Number one, we ought to be doing all that we can to avoid either compromising the truth of the gospel or adding offense to it. I know that's a mouthful, so read it a few times. But I think that that was exactly Paul's thought process with circumcising Timothy at the beginning of the chapter. It's also why Paul would circumcise Timothy in Acts 16, but not Titus in Galatians chapter 2. To circumcise, Timothy, or to circumcise Titus would have been to compromise the truth of the gospel. But to circumcise Timothy was to avoid adding unnecessary offense to it. And those are decisions that take a lot of wisdom to be able to make correctly. Jesus sometimes went along with religious customs and traditions, and Jesus sometimes outright defied them to the horror of the religious people that were around him. We need to be able to understand each situation individually in order to make decisions that are most tactful and in order to make decisions that will provide for the clearest path of the gospel into people's hearts. God forbid that because of our own traditions or customs or habits that we stand in the way of somebody seeing the beauty of the gospel. But we also need to make sure that nothing we do compromises the truth of it. Our goal is to magnify it. And so sometimes that will mean going along with customs or traditions, and sometimes that will mean defying them. Number two, this chapter shows us that we can trust God when things don't go the way that we've planned. It must have been very frustrating for Paul in verses 6 through 8. You know, when he tries to go into Asia and the Holy Spirit forbid him. And then when he goes to Mysia and the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow him there. That must have been a very frustrating experience. But as we've already said, Paul didn't quit serving God just because he couldn't do it the way that he had planned to. Or just because it didn't go the way he had intended. Instead, he acted on the opportunity he had and it actually resulted in what he was really after all along. God knows so much more than we know. He sees so much more than we see. So many times our frustrations are simply because our perspective is too limited. And over and over again, God is showing us that we can trust him. That even if things don't go the way that we thought that they would go, that there will be opportunities for glory to God and for our own personal growth. God makes all things beautiful in his time. And then a third conclusion that we can take from this chapter is that true belief is inseparable from obedience. I've talked about this a few times, and I don't want to go too far down this trail, but when we talk about how we're saved, is it 
by faith only? That becomes a question that we talk about a lot. In a sense, yes. And in a sense, no. If you mean, is it by just simply saying, well, I believe in Jesus, I accept him as my Savior, then no. The Bible teaches us that's not how somebody becomes saved. But if we understand faith as being when somebody really trusts God, or belief for that matter, as we've seen the word used in Acts 16, then that kind of faith is inseparable from obedience. When somebody really does believe God, they will do what he says. And so, yes, faith is what saves us. Faith alone saves us in that sense. We can say what Paul said to the jailer, believe and you will be saved. But we have to sometimes explain further what's entailed by obedience. The jailer didn't earn his salvation with obedience. His obedience was in response to knowing that he couldn't earn it. He wanted God to do for him what he knew he could not do for himself. And so because he believed in God's promises, he did what God said to do to receive them. He put his faith in Jesus, not himself, by being baptized. Now, a lot of times, these kinds of conversations have to do with conversion. We're trying to talk about what must somebody do to become a saved person. But this is also good for us to understand in terms of how we live our lives after conversion, isn't it? We might say that we believe God. But the way that we live will actually reveal the truth. If we say that we trust God, but we're always fretting over every little thing that happens to us, then maybe we don't trust him as much as we say. If we say that we love God, but we don't show love for our brethren, John would tell us we're actually liars and the truth is not in us. Sometimes we allow ourselves to live with a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we're actually doing. And really, that is the essence of hypocrisy. But the reality is that our actions will reveal what we truly believe in our hearts. And if we do believe God, then we'll trust him enough to do what he tells us. Even if it's hard, even if we don't like it, and even if we don't understand. So true belief is inseparable from obedience. That's the lesson this afternoon. I appreciate you being here and uh, being a part of this study. There might be somebody here who needs to make your life right with God. It might be something very private. You might just want to say a prayer while we are singing this song. It might be something that you need to go home and address, maybe with your spouse or your family or somebody else. It might be something that you need to just work out between yourself and God. But it might also be something that you need to do publicly. You might need to become a Christian. You might need to ask for strength and support and prayers from your brethren. You might even need to confess a failure that others know about, a public sin that you want to make right. But if there's something that you need to do to make your life right with God before you leave, and we can help you, we want you to know that you can come to the front and let us know while we stand together and sing.